0: Hi, everyone. It's Casper here. We've got some fabulous live shows coming up that we hope you'll be able to join us for. We're in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 2nd, Washington, D.C. on November 7th, Chicago, Illinois, where my uncle was born, on November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. We hope to see you there. Chapter 10. The Marauder's Map Madame Pomfrey insisted on keeping Harry in the hospital wing for the rest of the weekend. He didn't argue or complain, but he wouldn't let her throw away the shattered remnants of his Nimbus 2000. He knew he was being stupid, knew that the Nimbus was beyond. I'm Casper Terkyle.
1: And I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
0: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You know sometimes when you're scrolling through social media and something catches your eye which you're just obsessed with? So this happened to me this week when I came across this little note by a guy called Dan who runs a Tumblr called FACTS in all caps. And this is what he wrote. And remember, this is in all caps. Harriet Tubman escaped from slavery and then went back to get others. Like, I know you know who Harriet Tubman is and that she did that, but I just want you to take that in for a second. Harriet Tubman was held captive and bound to unpaid, backbreaking labor since birth under penalty of torture or death. She managed to escape that life, and then she turned the hell around and went the hell back to get everyone else, who were still trapped in it. And then she did it again 18 more times. When Abraham Lincoln was unsure whether or not he was prepared to make a stand against slavery, Harriet Tubman basically said he should stop being such a diaper baby and that guys who are too scared to end slavery don't deserve to win wars. Not only did she secret over 300 slaves to freedom on the Underground Railroad, But she acted as a spy for the Union Army during the Civil War and became the first woman to lead an armed assault in the Civil War. That raid brought freedom to over 700 slaves in one go. So I just want you to stew on that for like a minute. Acting in the shadows, she walked into hell on earth 19 times to save her fellow human beings from the torment she endured. And the second she was given even a modicum of power, she managed to free 700 slaves in one day. I guarantee, however impressed you already are with Harriet Tubman, you are falling like at least 40% short of how impressed you should be with Harriet Tubman. She is one of the best examples of badassery in the entirety of American history. I love this post for so many reasons. I mean, one is obviously just the content. Growing up in England, I guess I didn't learn much of this kind of history. So first of all, I'm totally one of those people who got the badassery of Harriet Tubman wrong by at least 40%. But I also love just the way this post is written. Like, this post should be, in all caps, because imagine living that life. Imagine the courage it takes, just the physical bravery that you need to go back 18 more times to go and rescue other people who are enduring a hell that you know.
1: Yeah, I would imagine that part of the reason one escapes is for the sense of relief. And so the idea that you would get that sense of relief and then put yourself in danger of being trapped again... It gets to the heart of the question of why we try to escape. Do we escape in order to help others or do we escape to help ourselves? I had never thought of Harriet Tubman as an escape artist, and she was definitely escaping to help others.
0: Amazing. Vanessa, you know what feels like is a all caps every episode?
1: My amazing 30-second recap. Yeah, I was
0: going to say the 30-second recap,
1: yeah. <laughs> okay, are you ready to time me? Yes. I actually prefer to time myself. Yeah, this
0: has changed, <laughs> listeners. I used to be able to hold the timer. That privilege has been taken away from me.
1: You're welcome.
0: You can time yourself. I'm just going to have a little piece of chocolate right now and relax.
1: <laughs> okay. I'll just do the whole thing by myself then. On my mark, get set, Go. <laughs> Harry is in the hospital wing, and he's just, like, mourning the loss of his firebolt, and he's so sad. He gets out of the hospital wing. Wood is, like, super sad that they lost um, the Quidditch match. Everybody's really sad about that. And then there's a big Hogsmeade trip, and Harry's like, oh, I can't go to Hogsmeade. And then Harry um, gets the Marauder's Map from George and Fred, and he goes into Hogsmeade anyway, and that's where he overhears all the teachers talking about how Sirius was his godfather, and Sirius was supposed to be the secret keeper for the—and it's their fault that he died, and then he magically gets back under the tunnel back into Hogwarts.
0: That was like a Formula One race. Like you accelerated and then stayed there for like a good 20 seconds.
1: Would you like to time yourself or?
0: Unlike some people, I'm comfortable giving power away.
1: Or I'm more trustworthy than you are. On your mark, get set.
0: My favorite thing about this chapter is we get to meet Madame Rosmerta. Rosmata, Rosmerta. She's just like such a character. Hagrid has been blubbering to everyone else all about the like things happening at Hogwarts, and she's like, Oh minister, yes, I did hear Roma. And then Fudge, what a doofus, is like telling everyone state secrets. And Harry's like, I'm chill because I hit my head on the trapdoor and now I'm in Honey and look, I'm in hogsmeade and everything is cool. Thanks, George and Fred.
1: Do you know why you don't get stressed about timing yourself? Why? Because you hold yourself to such a low standard (laughs) that it's like, oh, if I
0: don't get it all. I'm just bringing some color to the beautiful skeleton that you've laid out for us. You
1: are the technicolor that sweeps in when we arrive in Oz. (gasps) I liked the black and white part, though. Me and no one else
0: in my childhood. Just the mean aunts and uncles.
1: Yeah, I'm like, this is where the real stuff happens before those annoying munchkins come in. (laughs) So, Casper, where would you like to start with our theme of escape this week?
0: Well, I feel like we need to start with the Marauders map because this really is like a central piece of the chapter. You know, this is a tool we're going to stick with for the rest of the books. And this is the great moment where we're introduced to it. And rereading it, I was kind of struck how chill Fred and George were about giving this tool away, which has helped them escape so many difficult situations. And I don't want to make a comparison between Harriet Tubman and Fred and George here. But there is something happening which I think is similar in the fact that they're giving this map to Harry at their own cost, just like Harriet went back 18 times to go and rescue others. George and Fred are handing something over which they are no longer able to use.
1: Yeah. And they say to Harry, we already have it memorized. But the most amazing part of the Marauder's Map are the dots. Exactly. And knowing where people are at all times. So they don't have it memorized. People move in unexpected ways. And so I don't know if it's hubris that they're like, hey, we can get out of scrapes with dung bombs and all sorts of other trickery, or if they think that they just sort of know Felch's schedule and rhythms at this point, so they don't feel like they need Mm. the, the dots on the Marauder's Map. I really can't understand what it is that is motivating them to give this to Harry. If it's just complete empathy with the fact that they would feel trapped and they would absolutely hate not being able to go into Hogsmeade.
0: I think that's what it is, because they say, you need this more than we do. You know, it's happening right at the moment where the second weekend happens, where students can go to Hogsmeade, and Harry's left alone again, and he's kind of reconciled himself with the fact that he's going to be stuck inside and he's reading some, you know, like, Quidditch book that Oliver Wood has given him. And so I think George and Fred, exactly as you say, I think they're moved by empathy, and I think maybe, you know, because Arthur Weasley knows stuff about the serious situation, maybe he's mentioned it to the boys, so So, maybe they're aware that there could be some trouble and this might be a protection for Harry as well. So, it's not only about like escaping to get to Hogsmeade, it might also be a tool of, you know, staying safe.
1: I mean, they also just have to feel so bad about Harry at the Quidditch match, right? Like, I can imagine just wanting to do something nice for this guy who's like been so helpful on the Quidditch team and this horrible, like, embarrassing thing happened in front of the entire school and like, let's cut him a break. But I have a question about the Marauder's Map. How did Fred and George figure out the phrases, I solemnly swear I'm up to no good and mischief managed? They say, I reckon that Filch couldn't figure out how to work it. And they were like, but we could no problem. And then the only way we know to do it is with these very specific phrases. How on earth did they figure that out?
0: That is such a good question. Maybe, oh, maybe it's one of those things where it actually doesn't matter the words that you say, but your intention matters.
1: I wondered that, too, if it was like you have to really... Have some sort of like pure of heart thing. I don't think so.
0: I think it's Uh. that they're up to no good. I think it's literally if your intention is to screw things up and like make a mess, then it enables you to do it. And when you've finished your trickery, then it's like mischief managed. Because I'm sure that Filch wasn't sitting there trying to be like, I've got a great stink bomb for McGonagall.
1: But later we know that in book seven, Harry uses the Marauder's Map just to watch Ginny. And that just seeing the name Ginny Weasley like makes him feel better. And that, he's, like, not up to no good. and Well, I guess, like, stalking <laughs> is no good. He's not stalking her. She's he's a little pervy. It's not even pervy. He's literally staring at her name. Yeah, and I think that on our theme of escape, Mrs. Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs, purveyors of aids to magical mischief makers, like, they wanted people to be able to get out of scrapes and get themselves in, I'm sort of to your Harriet Tubman point of view. They wanted it... People to be able to get into mischievous situations, and the only way that you feel comfortable trying to get into a mischievous situation is, is no- if you know you can get out. Exactly, right? That's
0: genius. I
1: mean, Harriet Tubman, if she knew she was going to get caught and just have to go back into slavery, she, she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't have been helping anyone. <laughs> she would have just been like sitting there with people, miserable and unable to help. So it's only if you have an escape route like the Marauder's Map that you can make mischief.
0: I love this. I think, I mean, this is really interesting to think about. If you know you have an escape route, it allows you to be so much more courageous. I think we see this with the invisibility cloak. I think we see this all sorts of places in the book. That's really cool.
1: I mean, we see it in our own lives too. I'm more likely to donate money if I know that I have money coming in, right? Knowing that you have another plan just makes you braver in all sorts of circumstances.
0: Vanessa, where else do you see this this theme of escape?
1: So I really saw it in Harry's response at the very beginning of the chapter to the Dementor's voice. Mm. So this has been a real trauma for him, the fact that the Dementors came and he fell off of his broom. But what seems to really be haunting him is the sound of his mother's voice trying to protect him from Voldemort. I feel like... Part of the reason that Harry wants to go into Hogsmeade and certainly the reason that he asks Lupin for help learning how to fight Dementors is because he wants to escape the sound of his mother's voice. He wants to be able to sort of exercise himself from that. And it was just making me think about. If there were certain thoughts that I could escape from and just, like, train myself out of thinking, I would definitely like to train myself out of thinking that I would be happy if I just lost 10 pounds.
0: Oh, please, God.
1: (laughs) Right? I would... Escape from that thought before I would escape from the 10 pounds because I've weighed different weights and the 10 pounds has never made the difference. So, <laughs> and imagine having such a haunting thought that you want to escape from. I can't imagine how acute and desperate that feeling must be for Harry.
0: It's so funny you mentioned this, Vanessa, because I really was struck at the very beginning of the chapter. You know, Harry's in that hospital bed, as you say. And the text tells us that he is looking up from the bed at strips of moonlight on the ceiling, which struck me because it might just be it might just be moonlight coming in through the window. right? Might might have a very innocent explanation. But I suddenly thought, gosh for anyone who's lying in hospital, you know, there are thoughts going through your head. And for Harry, it's this. For someone else, it might be, gosh, am I going to get better? It might be, I'm worried about the other people who were hurt in the accident or, or whatever it is. And so kind of things that distract you visually or that distract you in your brain can be so helpful to just give you some peace of mind. And I suddenly thought, gosh, maybe this is Dumbledore or someone else. Maybe it's Madame Pomfrey who has just created these beautiful designs of moonlight that that move on the ceiling that are just pulling harry's mind away from this traumatic memory um because there's nothing worse than lying awake like late at night you know it's 2 a.m you can't get to sleep these thoughts are running through your mind and of course at this point harry hasn't told anyone and so it's such an isolating experience i i I don't know i just thought that was such a beautiful thing to think about the moonlight on the ceiling
1: i agree and i i think that often moments of distress or boredom, even patterns can help you escape. I'll start counting tiles or like looking for the pattern in tiles, which I think a lot of people do. And I think just so much of meditation, which is something that I constantly am wanting to get better at is being able to interrupt your own thoughts a little bit. And I wish that Harry had the tools to interrupt his thoughts, to not have to learn these practical skills of fighting dementors or not having to endanger his life and run into Hogsmeade in order to interrupt the cycle of these thoughts of hearing his mom's voice. And mind you, it's like in him. I mean, like, it's so hard. But if I could wish something for Harry, it would be that he had a tool at his disposal, whether it would be like starting to write a little creative writing story or like something else that he could
0: escape his own mind himself. Yeah, I feel like Hogwarts needs to hire a new professor of like meditation or contemplative practice or mental health or something.
1: And again, I think this gets back to the nature of the circumstances that we're in, you know, on an airplane where you can't escape, you become friends with the person sitting next to you, even though at a bar, a place where you can escape, you wouldn't become friends with them. And if you were in an entertaining or like free place, you're not going to be looking at shadows. But if you're trapped in a hospital bed and Madame Pomfrey won't let you get up and you're going to make meaning out of moonlight. So I think that to some extent this speaks to the beauty of feeling trapped, but I think that the beauty of it really only goes so far because there are times where you can't stop hearing your mom's screams or you are stuck next to a horrible person on the airplane and you just have no escape. So Casper, there's somewhere else I want to talk about escape and I'm, I'm on the fence about mentioning it, but I feel like I should just try anyway. Are the Dementors trapped at Hogwarts? Whoa. The nature of Dementors is that they feed off the happiness of others, which is not something I respect. But they are used to being able to eat at Azkaban, and they have been sent to Hogwarts, a place where they are being forbidden from touching the students. And therefore, are they trapped and, like, looking for escape? And that's why they tried to go to the... Quidditch match, Lupin says that he just doesn't think that they could avoid what would feel to them like a feast. I feel like maybe the Dementors are starving and cannot escape. And because of the politics of the situation, everybody feels trapped. Like Fudge feels like the Dementors have to be there.
0: Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. This is huge because, you know. We may not like how some animals feed. Some animals feed on newborn babies of other species. There are horrible ways in which animals survive. And we say, well, that's just nature. Is that the same with dementals? Are they just another form of magical creature? And we just have to, like, accept that this is how, this is how they survive. Like, whoa,
1: Right and I think it depends on the circumstance I think symbolically this doesn't work if right. we are thinking of the dementors as a symbol for depression or a symbol for oppression those things do not need to feed those are things that we should try to starve out right and eradicate right but if they are just super hungry creatures that exist naturally in the world we know from environmental history that trying to eradicate species that are sort of native to a land doesn't end up working, right? Like, so I think to some extent, maybe the Dementors being sent to Azkaban is like a terrible way to treat prisoners, but was like the best way that people could think to manage the fact that the Dementors have to eat. I'm not saying any of this is like morally okay. I'm just saying that Maybe the Dementors are trapped and need an escape, and I don't know what their escape is.
0: Well, and one of the things that would be interesting to know is, like, how do Dementors live in the wild? Like, do they travel in packs and, like, just decimate villages, you know, where they go and suck people's happiness. I mean, it's horrible because maybe if they all traveled as, like, lone wolves, right, and, like, once in a while people have, like, a horrible moment and then they move on and they kind of float around, that feels like it would be better in some ways than what's happening here where they're all being held in a pen And so when the breakout comes, the breakout is explosive. And as we'll see later in the books, they can be commandeered in very nasty ways indeed.
1: Which is why maybe later Voldemort is able to like sort of offer them a better deal. He's like, Dumbledore locked you up with no escape. I'm going to let you go wild, right? And so maybe it's only because they've been deprived like this that later the option from Voldemort sounds so good.
0: Oh, my goodness. This is so difficult, though, because... Should we just let them get away with it? I feel like we can't. Like no, it's, of
1: course not, right? It's,
0: no, we can't let that happen. But I'm seeing more depth in what's happening here than I ever have before with the Dementors. Uh, it's kind of blowing my mind.
1: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost... A tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quips Electric Toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash harrypotter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash harrypotter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, And it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now, I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes, and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter.
0: So, Vanessa, we've already talked a little bit about Harry's escape or kind of breakout into Hogsmeade. Let's remind ourselves, this is serious stuff. Arthur Weasley, as he gets on the train, tells him, like, whatever you do, do not go searching for trouble. You know, he's learnt already that Sirius is after him. Malfoy's kind of intoning that things are pretty bad.
1: is like, maybe you shouldn't practice Quidditch because I'm so worried.
0: So why is he breaking out? Is this just about sweets? Is it just about joining his friends? Like, he seemed pretty resigned to the fact that, you know, he had this Quidditch book to sit down with. Now that he has the means, why is he choosing Choosing to escape Hogwarts and go to Hogsmeade and put himself in danger.
1: The only thing I can think about is that maybe it feels like too serendipitous that right at that moment, Fred and George appear and there are moments that just feel like, oh my God, this is everything that I want. It's like walking by a movie theater and like you have somewhere to be, but you can skip it. And the movie you've really been wanting to see starts in two minutes. You're like, hmm okay and you splurge on a movie right it's just like it's too tempting and it's right in front of
0: him well and it literally is right in front of him because the entrance to the secret corridor that final entrance is literally just a few paces away so yeah maybe there is something about proximity that makes it extra tempting i mean the other thing that it reminded me of was kind of you know like a teenager sneaking out at night right like he's he's kind of 13 14 now um you know he's breaking curfew. And we know that there's something about teenagers biologically and developmentally that doesn't fully understand risks sometimes. So there might be just some bad decision making. But is he trying to prove something too?
1: I just think that he wants to escape his miserable situation. Like what is worse? He feels like, I and mean, he's just had a really bad year. Like Snape is really riding him. The dementors are affecting him more than they're affecting anyone else. He just feels like a Victim. And this is a way to assert some agency. So I just think one of the things that we often try to escape is our own identities, right? It's, I mean, it's like Jackie Mason, the comedian, has this great bit about people who go and look for themselves. And he's like, I don't want to go look for myself. What if I find myself? <laughs> Right. It's like you want to escape yourself sometimes. I find that that sometimes I'll like go on a run to clear my head and then I'm like.
0: I just eat chocolate to clear my head.
1: Right. But like no matter what I do, I'm still with myself and like I haven't been able to outrun that. So I feel like Harry is just trying to distract himself and get out of
0: his head. I mean, the other thing that's kind of at the back of my mind is that. Being kind of shut up and and hemmed in and, you know, not allowed to do certain things is a little bit of a threat to Harry's masculinity as well, right? Masculinity equals strength in our understanding of the world. And this is making Harry weak. And, And we've already seen how Malfoy kind of pounces on that, ironically, with his broken arm. But there's something here, I think, that we're beginning to see about the kind of fragility of of Harry's masculine identity and that he wants to assert, as you said, he wants to assert his agency and his power and his strength, especially in the face of the dementors, which make him seem so weak and vulnerable in front of everyone else. But also to himself, he doesn't understand why he's so weak. And and so he's overcompensating, I think.
1: Yeah, it just occurred to me. I had never thought of this, but he doesn't bring the invisibility cloak with him and I think that he wants to get caught. He just embarrassed himself in front of the whole school he wants the whole school to see him swagger and be like I am not scared of the dementors. The dementors are going to roll through Hogsmeade I don't care Sirius Black is on the loose I don't care Like, look at me. I think that this is also performance
0: I completely agree like when they're walking through the streets I'm like hello the whole of the school is here like there are so many witnesses and then they just go into the three broomsticks for a butterbeer and sure the professors come and then they hide behind the tree. But like Harry is walking around for everyone to see. And you're right. He's got to be doing this on purpose.
1: Yeah. And I think that it's also just in front of Ron and Hermione. They were by his bedside all day. And now, you know, he catches them like taking care of him, being like, do you think Harry will like this? Do you think Harry will like this? And imagine the sense of relief and power of
0: being like, I wouldn't like that. Right. they were at the sweet shop and he's like, no, I don't want that.
1: Right. I feel like this is just a performance of some agency, which now that I'm talking about it, I really empathize with. You know, you don't like to feel like everybody's always having to take care of you and like you're the pathetic one. Right. I feel like. Look, I can have fun too, and I'm not scared, and I can break rules. I, I understand why he would want to do that.
0: I think he feels a little belittled, and he, he wants to show how big he is. I think you're right.
1: Doesn't excuse putting his life at risk.
0: Not if I were his friend.
1: Casper, now is time for us to do some Lectio Divina. Yippee! So, please pick a number between 37 and 56.
0: Um, 49. No, 50, 54.
1: Okay, 54. So, we'll go to page 154. Now, just give me a second. Closing my eyes. Okay, this is the sentence. Okay. But what if I'd given Harry to him eh? I bet he'd have pitched him off the bike halfway out to sea. So step one of Lectio Divina, Casper, what is literally going on in this sentence?
0: So we're now with Harry and Ron and Hermione overhearing a conversation between Minister of Magic Fudge, uh, Madame Rosmerta, McGonagall and Hagrid, which is kind of a weird mix.
1: And um, Flitwick.
0: And Flitwick. Yeah, super weird mix. Um, In The Three Broomsticks. And Fudge is sharing all of this information that he shouldn't be sharing about Sirius and Sirius's relationship to James Potter, the fact that Sirius was best man at his wedding. And Hagrid says, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. Sirius was the first person I saw when I came to pick up Harry, who at that point was a baby, right, straight after he's kind of overcome Voldemort. And... Sirius gave his magical motorbike to Hagrid, which is how he brings the baby to the Dursleys. And so Hagrid in this moment is being like, oh my gosh, what if I'd given Harry to Sirius? Which Sirius asked him to do. He said, give me Harry, I'm his godfather. And Hagrid said, no, I'm here on Dumbledore's orders. So Hagrid is imagining a life that hasn't happened, but where where Sirius might have killed Harry as a baby.
1: Yes, that is correct.
0: Thanks. Ten points for Slytherin.
1: Yes. Bleak
2: but correct
0: (laughs) okay so that's the first step so second step we want to start thinking about allegory are there other stories or or sounds or images you know what does this remind us of elsewhere in the text or beyond
1: yes so the sentence just before we hop in is but what if i'd taken harry to him Eh? I bet he'd have pitched him off the bike halfway out to sea so what I'm reminded of are those sort of turning-in-the-road moments or sliding-door moments where you wonder, what if I had done something different? And Hagrid is having one of those right now of, like, what if I had given Harry to Sirius? What would have happened then? So, I mean, like, it reminds me of the Robert Frost poem of, like, two roads to Virgin Wood and I took the one last traveled by right? Like, Hagrid is always taking the road Dumbledore sets for him— Yeah, I'm just wondering about these, like, two roads that Hagrid is now seeing that he could have taken. Sirius makes a really good claim. He says, he's my godson, like, give him to me. And so I do wonder what would have happened if Harry had been given to Sirius.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Gosh. And of course, we know later in the books that he wouldn't have been thrown into the sea. Actually, the sea was the bit that reminded me of kind of an allegorical moment. I just immediately was taken to book six, where Harry and Dumbledore go to find the locket. They go to this cliff and there's this sea landscape. And it's not just an ocean or a sea. It's like dangerous. And Harry is there with an older man at risk uh, and he's being taken there. So there's some kind of, you know, mirror image to him as a baby with Sirius potentially.
1: He also does that with Vernon and the Dursleys when they're trying to escape <sighs> Hagrid's letters. There's something about Harry being taken out into the sea. And is this an English thing?
0: Well, I mean, it's an island, so <laughs> we're surrounded by by sea. But but that is interesting. I hadn't thought about that because well, there's an element of escape just on the theme. But more interestingly, it's again with an older man who's taking him to danger.
1: This is also Hagrid working out some angst about the fact that he like easily makes mistakes and the fact that he's easily talked into things. And he's like worst case scenario imagining what would have happened if he had been swayed.
0: Well, especially because we've seen Hagrid follow the letter Of Dumbledore's instructions, but not always the spirit. He'll still reveal a lot of information or he'll, you know, make some bad decisions, which end up getting people into serious trouble. And I think he's realizing here how close he was to making a big mistake, like he's done in the past.
1: Yeah. One last allegory thing is the given Harry to him. When someone becomes an adult, you can't hand them over like their property like that. And so it just reminds me of the fact that Harry is just an object at this point.
0: Well, an object or, you know, I'm reading these fabulous books by Maurice Drouin, The Accursed Kings. And it's it's about the Hundred Years' War and the French kings. And so often, if a child was becoming king or queen, there would be a regent. If their father was no longer alive, their mother might be queen regent or an uncle. And so there's something here around that, I think, as well, that there's a sort of, acting instead of this child on their behalf, but you never really know if those adults are actually acting on behalf of the child. Often they're just using it for their own power and influence. And I think that is happening here a little bit as well. You you don't quite know either Hagrid or Sirius's intentions in that moment.
1: But it's also just, I wonder if It's why Harry, like, goes into Hogsmeade later and why Harry is just constantly an object that people are moving back and forth and making these huge decisions for him. And he has so little agency in his life. No wonder he's, like, going underground to fight Voldemort and doing all of these, like, mischievous things. These major decisions are made On this macro level, I mean, has Dumbledore even met Harry? Hagrid's never met Harry. Maybe Sirius has. But like these people are fighting over him and then he gets dropped off somewhere that he hasn't even wanted. And none of these people even know him.
0: Right. He's like a pawn on a big chessboard. You know, the final thing I'll say before we move on to stage three is that there is something beautiful in this scene because we know that. Hagrid's famous motorcycle is actually Sirius's. And that the last act that Sirius really does before he's taken up in this whirlwind of events, which puts him in Azkaban, is that he gifts this amazing, useful tool to Hagrid, which helps him deliver Harry to safety. But there's also this beautiful mirror image in that Buckbeak is ultimately given from Hagrid to Sirius to help him escape to safety. And so the three of these men, Hagrid, Sirius, and Harry, are kind of interlocked in this beautiful triumvirate of travel and safety and escape in some way that that we start to see in this moment.
1: Okay, Casper, before we do step three, let me read it for us one more time. But what if I'd given Harry to him, eh? I bet he'd have pitched him off the bike halfway out to sea.
0: So we're supposed to think at this third stage about what we're reminded of from our own experience, from our own lives. I'm just thinking of it's not really insightful but but my own experience at sea you know it'll be really fun when you're on the shore and it's sunny and you know everything looks lovely and then when you're out sailing or even in a motorboat and the weather changes quickly how dangerous and frightening the sea can be and just that idea of safety and danger being in the same place but depending on the time and the context i feel like Yes, that's true with the sea, but it's also true with both these men, right? That Hagrid, when he first arrives, is this frightening thing, but then becomes this, like, lovely, cuddly giant who's always there to protect Harry. And the same with Sirius, right? First, he's this kind of dangerous madman murderer, and then he's Harry's godfather, who is the only connection he has to his remaining family. And so just the way that perspective can shape reality and all of that has this weird impact for me that... It brings into question how much can you trust the thing that you're experiencing? You know, if you're sailing, and my sister is a professional sailor, so when I'm sailing with her, you know, like, I feel great, everything's in control, but things can turn very quickly, and then should I have trusted my instincts? Should I have trusted this boat? Should I have trusted this weather? I, I don't know. That it, I just think this passage is saying something about how so much depends on the perspective in which we're sitting
1: Your sisters are so cool.
0: They're pretty cool. How about you, Vanessa? What what does this passage remind you of in your own life?
1: It reminds me of the moments that I look back on and wonder, what, if I had made a different decision? I guess what's interesting to me is that there are so few of those moments in my life. I feel like the big decisions in my life are almost invisible to me. There aren't a lot of moments that I look back and I'm like, I did this, but what if I had done this other thing?
0: Like become a Hungarian gymnast?
1: Right. I feel like so much of my life feels like inertia, and obviously it's not. And there are a million small decisions that I make every day. But there aren't a lot of moments that I look back on and I'm like, what if I had done this other thing? So I guess it's just making me reflect on choices and what what it is that actually sets your life into motion.
0: I think that's why Hagrid is so torn up about this. I think this is one of those moments, and he's seeing it for the first time. Yeah. So for the fourth step, what does this call you to do? Can you read it for us one more time?
1: Yes. But what if I'd given Harry to him, eh? I bet he'd have pitched him off the bike halfway out to sea. Do you know what it calls me to? It calls me to assume good intentions in other people. Hagrid is catastrophizing in this moment. He's like, I bet he would have thrown him into the sea. And that's an understandable assumption, given what Hagrid currently thinks about Sirius. But I do that all the time. I'm like, they probably think this really horrible thing. They probably, and I just, I think I assume the worst in people sometimes. And it's just calling me to try to check that and assume good intentions. What about you, Casper?
0: This is kind of huge, but, you know, here in this scene we have this little baby who needs a home. And my husband one day would like to have a family, and there's all sorts of ways to start a family. And it just, it really calls me to explore adoption. You know, I think here's an example of a little baby who is in need of a loving home. And the Dursleys, for all their magical protection, do a really bad job, actually, of raising him. I hope I could do better.
1: You guys would be such good daddies. One day. This voicemail is from Katie Stickles-Winan from Oakland, California.
2: Hi, Vanessa and Casper. This is Katie Stickles-Winan calling from Oakland, California. I just finished listening to um, Foresight, Chapter 5, on my way to work this morning, and I really enjoyed everything you talked about and discussed with Foresight and that chapter, um, especially the sneak scope and how it senses Scabbers and Malfoy and kind of everything else that's going on, um, even though Ron thinks it's cheap. And what I have found myself coming back to in this chapter and when we first meet Crookshanks is that... Crookshanks is also sensing Scabbers and I know Scabbers is a rat and cats typically go after rats and mice, but there's something about Crookshanks immediately reacting to Scabbers and going after him, sitting on the train and staring at Ron's pocket where Crookshanks knows that Scabbers is. And it just, it was really illuminated to me as I read through the book um, this time around of like, that cat is so smart. It knows exactly who Scabbers is. And like that is Crookshanks focus and just the foresight of what Scabbers, who Scabbers turns out to be and the significant role of Scabbers in this book. Um, and I'm a cat lover myself, so that's probably why I paid more attention. But I also felt like Crookshanks came from the magical menagerie of animals and must have some magical tendencies and awareness and foresight on what Scabbers who Scabbers is and what Scabbers is going to mean to this story. So thank you so much. I love this podcast. I already have my ticket to the live show in San Francisco. I can't wait to see you guys. Thanks again.
0: Katie, I'm so glad that you brought this up. I feel like we haven't talked about Crookshanks at all. And there is so much going on with Crookshanks and Scabbers. I mean, clearly at this point, Scabbers is older than the average rat. Life expectancy, the sneaker scope is going off as exactly as you say. And at this point, Sirius hasn't even informed or trained Crookshanks. So something's going on. And I don't think we ever really find out. No, this
1: is why Crookshanks is the only cat in the world that I like. Because Crookshanks, yes, we find out later that he's like some sort of special animal with magical powers. But I think even at this point, he's a cat that feels really comfortable, like, unapologetically going with his gut. He's like, I don't like you, rat. And I've got my eye on you. And then later, it's like there's some confirmation. And he's like, I knew it. And really doubles down on going after scabbers. And I just, I really admire that about creatures who have a good gut response. I always trust my dog when she doesn't like someone. I'm like, you are probably right.
0: Thanks, Katie.
1: Yeah, thank you. We love talking about animals here.
0: Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone in the pages. And... I wanted to bless Ginny and it's it really for a small moment. Harry's in the hospital and he's receiving all sorts of guests and well wishes and you know, he's thrilled to see everyone. But he gets a card from Ginny, and she's made it herself. And she's blushing when she comes to deliver it. And my heart just opened because I thought I was deeply in love with this lovely boy named Oliver in college. And it was Valentine's Day, which was also his birthday. And so I made him this card and, like, didn't sign my name, but I, like, made it obvious that it was for me. I was so in love, I thought, with this guy. (laughs) I, f- I just felt so much goodness towards him. And, like, I think he liked me as a friend, but, like, it was never anything more. And so I just remember this, like, overwhelming intensity of delivering the card to his door and, like, his face the next time I saw him. So I just, oh, a blessing for Ginny and anyone who feels unrequited love. It's so hard. How about you, Vanessa?
1: My blessing is for Madame Rosmerta. She is a woman who owns a business and is like running a pretty great business, it seems. And it also seems from the way that Ron is like, "Oh, I'll go get the drinks," and Fudge is like, "Why don't you sit down with us?" that she probably gets hit on a lot. And I just want to say that she handles Fudge at least with a lot of grace. She's like, "Oh, sure, I'll sit down." And she actually seems to be like wielding a lot of political information and gossip and I just think that this is a savvy businesswoman who's probably put in a lot of not great situations and seems to handle it with a lot of grace. And so at minimum, my blessing is for women who are put in uncomfortable work situations. And there are a million ways to handle it, and all of them are valid. And I just want to bless Madame Rosmerda for the way that she handles her tricky situation.
0: You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr and Facebook and leave us a review on iTunes. It always warms our hearts. We'd love to hear from you. If you've got a voicemail to send in, please send us a story about your own life that helps us understand the theme in a new way and come to our live shows. You can buy your tickets at harrypottersacredtext.com. Next week, we'll read Chapter 11, The Firebolt, through the theme of duty, and we'll have Father Jim Martin join us as a guest, and he'll be teaching us more about sacred imagination.
1: This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paizau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. We would like to thank Katie Stickles-Winan for this week's voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ludley, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next
0: week. Bye-bye. That's really interesting. I mean, the other small thing is, especially the way you read it, Vanessa, the word A, I'm just like, what's going on in Canada right now? Like, <laughs> in the magical world? Like, we haven't talked about that.
1: No, we haven't. What a What a missed opportunity that is.
0: Hey, I'm Dylan Marin and this is Conversations with People Who Hate Me, the show where I call up some of the folks who have said hateful or negative things about me on the internet. You can listen to Dylan's Conversation wherever you love listening to podcasts. Just search Conversations with People Who Hate Me. And remember, there's a human on the other side of the screen.